They had it all. They were rich. They were well-read. They were intelligent. At the dawn of the Jazz Age, they should have been set for life. So sit back, mix yourself another classic Jazz Age cocktail, a bee's knees, and hear the strange and sordid tale of Nathan Leopold and Richard Lowe. Richard Loeb, known as Dickie, was raised in a wealthy Chicago home. His father was a vice president of Sears Roebuck and Company. Dickie was very intelligent and skipped several grades in school, and at age 14 he graduated and entered the University of Chicago. Things didn't go well for him there, and he transferred to the University of Michigan, and he became its youngest graduate at age 17. Despite his intelligence, he didn't receive high grades, and he spent most of his time gambling, playing tennis, and reading cheap detective novels. Dickie grew up just a few blocks away from Nathan Leopold in an affluent Chicago neighborhood. While Dickie Loeb was gregarious, handsome, and outgoing, Nathan kept to himself. He was aloof and socially awkward. His passion was birds. By the time he graduated from college at age 19, he had already written a book on the birds of Chicago and was recognized as one of the country's leading authorities on that subject. They became friends during Dickey's one year at the University of Chicago, and they reconnected in the summer of 1924 when Dickey returned to his home and Nathan was preparing to enroll in Harvard Law School the next fall. By then, the men, and really they were still just boys, were close friends. Nathan seemed to have a, an overwhelming desire to, to please Dickie, and he would go along with whatever his friend wanted to do. Now, Nathan had read a lot of works by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And he and Dickie were convinced that because of their intelligence and their backgrounds, they were part of a class of people that Nietzsche called supermen. And as such, they were above society's laws. They were not bound by any moral or ethical standards. In a letter that Nathan wrote to Dickie, he said, a superman is, on account of certain inherent qualities in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything that he may do. Well, they decided to act on their beliefs. They began by committing minor thefts and vandalism. Eventually, they broke into Nathan's old fraternity house at the University of Chicago and stole a number of small items, including a typewriter that they would later put to good use. When their crime spree did not generate a lot of publicity, they decided that they needed to up the ante. They decided that they would commit the perfect murder. They believed that they could never be caught. After all, they were supermen. They began their elaborate planning. From how they would select and kill a victim to how they would dispose of the body. They developed a detailed plan to collect the ransom. Now, they always said it wasn't about money, though some people thought Dickie actually needed the cash to pay off his gambling debts. 
they said it was just about the thrill, knowing what it would feel like to take another life. So they would send the person who was supposed to deliver the ransom money to various spots around Chicago, where they would find instructions for the next step, kind of like an elaborate scavenger hunt. Well, eventually, the person would be directed to drop the money out of a moving train while they waited in a car to retrieve it and speed away. Never seen. Seemed like a good plan at the time. Well, with their planning completed, they now had to select a victim. A young child with wealthy parents would be the best bet. They would be most likely to pay a ransom. So, they began scouting the streets near an expensive private school for the sons of wealthy families. On the afternoon of May 21, 1924, 14-year-old Bobby Franks was walking home. He wasn't a stranger. Dickie knew him well. Bobby was his second cousin. As he was walking on the sidewalk, they pulled next to him in their rented car. Hey, Bobby, want to ride home? Nah, it's only two more blocks. Come on, get in. I want to show you my new tennis racket. Well, Bobby was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. He got in the car and one of the boys, each one of them blamed the other, hit him several times with a chisel, and then they suffocated him. They drove around for a while. The next part of the plan called for disposing the body. They drove across the river to Indiana, to a lake, and they took off Bobby's clothes. They poured acid on his hands and his face and his genitals, so nobody could recognize him. They couldn't see his face, they couldn't get fingerprints, and they could never tell if he had been circumcised. So after preparing the body and burning the clothes, they put him in a culvert under railroad tracks next to the lake. Well, they made two mistakes. Mistake number one, they didn't put the body all the way in the culvert. One of Bobby's feet was hanging out, clearly visible from the road. Mistake number two, Nathan dropped his glasses near the body. Not just any glasses. Expensive green tortoise shell frames with a special hinge that was specially manufactured for him. Only one optometrist in all of Chicago made that special type of glasses. And he'd only made three pair. It took the cops less than one day to trace those glasses back to Nate. Well, step three was delivering the ransom note. Nathan called Bobby's parents, told them they had his son, and a ransom note would follow. Thus brings mistake number three. Nathan typed the ransom note on a stolen typewriter from his fraternity house. Now this particular typewriter had three damaged keys that most of the roommates at the fraternity house knew about. It made it very easy to identify any letter that may have been typed with that typewriter. After mailing the note, Nathan called the Franks house again, and he gave them the first set of detailed instructions on where to go to receive the next set. He set them off on their scavenger hunt. The parents selected someone to go, but he was nervous. 
and he forgot the instructions. He went back to the house to try to talk to the parents and tried to remember where he was supposed to go to get the next step in the ransom, but by that time, somebody had spotted Bobby's foot in the culvert and called the police. Despite the attempt to disfigure the body, it was immediately identified as poor Bobby Franks. Well, as soon as Nathan and Dickie heard about the discovery of the body, they smashed the typewriter with a hammer and left it in an alley where the police promptly discovered it and compared the keys to the ransom note. They matched. One of the detectives also remembered that a typewriter had been stolen from Nathan's fraternity house. Well, next, the cops found the glasses. They traced the ownership to Nathan and they took him in for questioning. He admitted that the glasses were indeed his and said that Maybe I dropped them when I was bird watching out near that lake a few days ago. Now, Dickie, on the other hand, he had a very solid alibi for his whereabouts. He said that he and Nathan had picked up a couple girls and were driving around when Bobby met his demise. But unfortunately, he never asked the girls their names. So the boys were interrogated. Nathan cracked first, admitting that he was involved in the murder but said his friend Dickie Loeb had actually committed the crime. Well, Dickie confessed a few minutes later, but he said Nathan had actually killed Bobby. Now, to this day, no one knows who actually did it. But at one point, Dickie urged Nathan to admit that he had in fact done it because, according to Dickie, quote, Mopsy feels less terrible than she might thinking you did it, and I'm not going to take that shred of comfort away from her. Well, with the boys in jail, Dickie's father knocked on the door of one of Chicago's most famous attorneys, Clarence Darrow, at midnight. He begged him to defend his son and save him from the hangman. He paid him an upfront fee of $70,000. That's a million bucks in today's money. So Chicago geared up for yet another trial of the century. The newspapers covered it with the same fervor that they used to report on the Cubs and the White Sox. With the crafty Clarence Darrow for the defense, the papers were wild with speculation. Would he ask for separate trials and try to create doubt and get two acquittals by having the boys blame each other? Would he argue that since Bobby was found in Indiana, the state couldn't prove the murder actually happened in Illinois and get them off on a jurisdictional technicality? Would he have his clients claim temporary sanity? The answer, it turned out, was none of the above. Darrell knew that his clients wouldn't have a chance in front of a jury. Their confessions, combined with the age of the victim and Leopold's and Loeb's own intellectual snobbery and wealth, guaranteed not only a guilty verdict, but the gallows for his clients. So, he took that decision out of the jury's hands. On the first day of the trial, he shocked the district attorney, the judge, and all of Chicago. When the judge said, how do you plead, Clarence Darrow on behalf of his client said, we plead guilty, your honor, to the charges of kidnapping and murder, and we leave the fate of my clients in your able hands. 
That was a very shrewd decision on the part of Clarence Darrow because the judge was a known opponent of capital punishment. In all of the years on the bench, he had never sentenced anyone to death on his own. He was also known to be very sympathetic to young people, and Nathan and Dickey were only 19 and 18 years old at the time. So the trial of the century wasn't even really a trial. It was simply a 32-day sentencing hearing. The prosecutor called over 100 witnesses, and their testimony was really just about the crime and the brutal facts of the murder. Darrow, on the other hand, called dozens of psychiatrists and doctors to testify about Nathan's and Dickey's psychological health. There was testimony that, that both of them had been neglected by their parents, been abused by their nannies, and spent most of their younger years being bullied because of their superior intelligence and intellect. The climax of the trial was Clarence Darrow's 12-hour-long final argument. It was crafted for an audience of one, Judge John R. Caverly. Darrow spent some of his argument talking about his client's youth and immaturity, but the majority of it dealt with the unfairness and basic inhumanity of the death penalty, playing to the judge's well-known beliefs on the matter. Two weeks after the hearing ended, Judge Cavalry called everyone back to the courthouse. He had reached his decision. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb would not meet the hangman. They were both sentenced to 99 years for kidnapping and life imprisonment for the murder of Bobby Franks. Dickey's life sentence turned out to be only 12 years long. In 1936, a fellow inmate cornered him in a shower and cut him over 50 times with a straight-edge razor. Dickey died in the prison infirmary. The murderer claimed that Dickey tried to sexually assault him and he acted in self-defense. He was acquitted. The prison chaplain and other officials claimed, however, that it was likely the other way around. Dickey was probably murdered when he rebuffed the other man's advances. Nathan, though, survived prison. While in jail, he started many educational programs for inmates and was a model prisoner. In 1958, he was granted parole and he moved to Puerto Rico. He became an x-ray technician and he eventually wrote a book about the birds of the Caribbean. He married a woman that he had met in Puerto Rico and over the years returned to Chicago several times to visit relatives and visit his parents' graves. In 1971, he died of a heart attack in Puerto Rico and he donated his body to medical science at the medical school of the University of Puerto Rico. Leopold and Loeb's case inspired several books, plays, and motion pictures, including an episode of the very popular TV detective show, Columbo. In Columbo Goes to College, two very arrogant friends planned the perfect murder of their professor. They got caught by the end of the show.
Thank you, Dad. That was great, as always. That's that's another popular one that we're uh, covering. Another trial of the century. Uh, yeah, I as I was doing my research, and we'll get into that later, I didn't realize how many shows and books had been inspired by this. So, well, it 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 was a as you said a crazy story. I mean. Uh, it had it all. It had the rich kids. It had the murder of the innocent child. It it had the most famous attorney in America at the time arguing for the defense. So um, a lot of drama there that, that authors and playwrights have mined over the years. And I love drama as well. So do you, Dad. I know. We are the gossipers <laughs> of our family, so... All right, well, we will discuss this more in a second, but first we have our Trends of the Crime section, sponsored by Style a la Mode. And this is the part of the podcast where I talk about what was in vogue at the time of the crime. I don't have a whole lot to say about this because the past three episodes, we've discussed the Jazz Age and there have been men in all of our stories. So uh, men in the 1920s were expected to wear suits, and there was a move toward relaxing suits in this decade. And the constant changing of rules for menswear tended to cause some anxiety for some people, meaning, meaning they now had a lot of options, they had different kinds of suits they could wear, they had to start pairing things together. Maybe it was that anxiety that, that drove uh, Leopold and Love over the edge. Maybe. Oh, no, I don't know what to wear. What do I wear? Let's kill somebody. <laughs> I just can't stand it. Yes, yeah, so uh, do you get anxiety picking out your clothes, Dad? Well, since Let's I'm describe your outfit today. What are you wearing? I am wearing pink shorts <laughs> and a blue Kansas City Royals shirt. Woohoo! And I feel absolutely no anxiety of all over this. None. Well, you look great. Well, thank you. I'm also wearing shorts and t-shirt, which is unusual for me, but it's hot outside, so I don't care. Um, yes, so as we discussed, Leopold and Loeb were rich kids, so they were both affluent. How do you say that word? Affluent. Affluent enough, thank you, to have beautiful tailored suits for all occasions. And pieces for casual looks included pullover sweaters, knit cardigans, and sweater vests. Picture preppy boys, you know, with their sweaters. Affluent men like Leopold and Loeb were often seen playing tennis. Which one did you say played was a big tennis player? That would have been Dickie Loeb, would have okay. been the tennis player. Yes, so tennis players were wearing V-striped trim sweaters, which I had one of those not too long ago, so those have been back in style. Uh, white duck cloth pants and Oxford shoes. Very stylish. Yeah. Now, I what about, uh, this is the first time we've had a chance to talk about a, a youngster, a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, what would, um, what would um, Bobby Franks have been wearing? Knickers? Would he have been wearing knickerbockers back then? And like those newsboy hats or something? Yep, knickerbockers. Knickerbockers, newsboys caps. Picture newsies, mm -hmm. Peaky Blinders, mm -hmm. uh, just your like. Um, who am I thinking of? Well, if you knew anything about golf, I'd say you were yes. thinking of Payne Stewart, who used to wear knickers and and the and the hat. I'm and, thinking of the, the movie with Shia LaBeouf. What movie was that, Dad? That would have been the greatest game ever played. Thank Excellent you. Excellent golf movie for you golfers out there, based yes. on a true story. 
excellent movie for you Shia LaBeouf lovers like me. Uh, yes, that's a good one. Popular Men's Hats, which we discussed in, was it Lindbergh? We talked mm-hmm. about hats? Yes. Same hats as that one. Derby, Homburg, Fedora, Boder, Panama, and Newsboys caps. You know, there was an interesting article in the New York Times about two weeks ago about Panama hats. Ooh. Um, there's, they're, they're actually not made in Panama. They are made in Ecuador. Hmm. And there's uh, two or three manufacturers down there who, who these, these hats are, the true Panama hats are, uh, the straw is woven by hand. It takes, you know, maybe a year to make a hat and a true Panama hat uh, from one of these uh, classic Panama hat makers, they might go for $10,000. Oh my God. Very interesting article if you want to look up the times or as yes. my friend calls it, the liberal rag. <laughs> I can link that on our social too. The Let's liberal that. rag, that's funny. Very interesting article. For those who do not know what a Panama hat is, it I would say it resembles a fedora, would you agree? Mm-hmm. With yeah. a wider... Uh, wider brim. Wi- mm-hmm. bro- wider brim and it's got a ribbon on it uh yeah very very slick hat here got some models wearing it on google okay ready to get into our discussion i am let's do it well first please tell us why you chose the bee's knees this week well the bee's knees is just another classic prohibition jazz age cocktail it um the main spirit is gin and uh, in during Prohibition times, you may have heard the term bathtub gin. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily made in a bathtub, but it was very cheaply made, very bitter, and uh, people were trying to find something to mix it with to mask the taste of this very acrid spirit. And uh, people began using honey to add some sweetness and some lemon. And uh, so today that has evolved into the bee's knees, bee's knees being jazz age slang for hey it's the best uh, it's the so bee's the, the cocktail that that we've made today it does the base spirit is gin made a little honey syrup and that's just some um, about a cup of honey with a cup of water that you just heat up kind of dissolve the honey um, a little bit of fresh squeezed lemon juice and i also added some saint germain which is an elderflower liqueur gives it just a, a, almost a hint of licorice flavor so I think it's quite tasty. Is this always a cold drink? Can you drink it hot? But the honey it's making me think it could be a hot drink but I don't know. You serve it at room temperature. Okay. Dad name this movie. Ready? I'll try. This is a game we like to play. Okay. You and I like to play this game I mean. You're the cat's pajamas man you're the bee's knees. That would be School of Rock. Bingo. Good job. All right, back to the matter at hand here. Um, well, the bee's knees was the bee's knees when I had it. It was very good. Um, all right, so I wanted to talk about Sears Roebuck and Company because mm-hmm. that is a history lesson I remember quite well. I We learned about it, I don't know, a long time ago, but I think it stuck out because they had that big catalog. Yeah. And I loved looking at catalogs when I was little and yeah so I wanted to talk about this a little bit you know I think a lot of teenage boys like looking at the Sears Roebuck catalog <laughs> but we won't go there <laughs> well Sears Roebuck and Company is Sears 
Mm-hmm. Um, for those who didn't know, uh, it started as a mail order business with a famous catalog. Do you remember this catalog, Dad? Oh, yes. Yeah. Did you it buy would, things from it? It would come twice a year, and there'd usually even be a Christmas catalog that came out full of it that had the toys and games. So it would arrive in the mail at October, October or November, and I would immediately get that catalog, and I'd leaf through it, and I'd mark up all the toys that I wanted. I remember... I wanted electric football games. I wanted the, a Superman costume. And then I I would just kind of leave the catalog laying around the house open to that page, kind of like uh, uh, Ralphie did in A Christmas yes. Story. So, yes, I remember the Sears Roebuck catalog uh, quite well. The best thing I can compare it to is on Black Friday, I like to look through the, the little mailing catalogs <laughs> to find what I want. <laughs> no, and, yeah, I, I, this thought just came to me. Sears Roebuck and Montgomery Wards, that was another store. Back in the day, people would order things through their catalogs because there weren't a lot of brick-and-mortar stores. And then the catalog business went away, and everybody would go to the mall. And now it seems like we've kind of reverted back to, uh, to mail order, except now instead of a catalog, we just log on the computer and go to Amazon or, or some yep. other company. So. The big circle. Something else I was thinking about. Back where we started. Yes. And I was thinking about this today, actually, how now we don't even have to think about things like I ordered a razor and it's going to send me replacement uh, replacements every two months. And Mm -hmm. I have a face wash that replenishes every two months. And now you don't even have to think about it. And yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And now malls are going away and sad day. I love them all. Well, something interesting that Sears did, uh, they sold a lot of merchandise at low prices to farms and villages that had no other convenient access to retail outlets. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I remember Papa, my grandpa, saying, talking about this, uh, just how they ordered from Sears because they couldn't go to the store. So that brought back some memories. Back in the, back in the 30s and 40s, a person could actually order a house from Sears. Wow. It would it would just come shipped in a kit and you would put the house you build the foundation and then Sears would ship you the 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 lumber and the shingles and you could build your own house. It was a house what? kit. Yep. That's mm-hmm. funny. Weird. Uh what were you gonna say? I was gonna say one other thing uh-huh. about the Sears. If you have something else to say about the store and I'll finish up just telling you one other catalog store. Oh, go ahead. Well, um, back to your papa. Mm-hmm. Uh, he grew up on a farm without indoor plumbing, and uh, the Sears catalog, after everybody leafed through it and ordered it, how do I put this? It was your toilet paper. Ew, gross. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's funny. That's gross. But farm life, hashtag farm life, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, this is all relevant because uh, Dickie Loeb's uh, father was a vice president of Sears. Yes, I forgot to mention that at the beginning. Thank you. Yes, as as was at the beginning of our story, he was vice president. Um, Sears also started, this is such a hard word to say, rural free delivery. Mm-hmm. They, that started in 1896 and parcel post in 1913 by the U.S. Postal Service. And that enabled Sears to send its merchandise to its most isolated customers. And this next point is what I really remember Papa talking about 
was Sears flourished in the economic boom after World War II and wasn't challenged as America's largest retailer until the 80s when Kmart surpassed it in total sales. But Walmart eventually surpassed both and became the largest retailer in the world. Yeah. I just remember Papa talking about how it was the biggest, It that was it, yeah. you know? If you wanted something, you found it in the Sears catalog. Yep. And they just recently tore down one of the last Sears stores in, in our metropolitan area here in Kansas City. At uh, Ward Parkway? Metcalf South. Metcalf South. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Sad. Mm -hmm. Well, the next point on my little list here, Superman complex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that a lot today, aren't we, Dad? We, uh, we are. Um, you know, it, it dates all the way back to uh, that German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, a uh, very popular philosopher, very well read, and he influenced a lot of people. Um, a lot of people say that uh, he was one of the main inspirations for Hitler and the Holocaust. Um, yeah, he had like a cult following, yes. I saw, yeah. You know, that the idea being that uh, if you were part of a superior race, and Hitler felt the Germans were, and uh, Leopold and Loeb felt not necessarily a race, but just because of my intelligence and my background, um, the rules don't apply to me. I can do what I want. I don't have to be accountable. And uh, I don't really know if that's ever gone away. What do you think? Well, I think it's here right now. I mean, we're seeing that with the mask mandates and uh, during the pandemic that's happening. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that with the impeachment that happened earlier this year. Uh, I see it all the time. Um, it's sad because I think that a lot of times that mindset lacks empathy for others. Um, it's a, it's selfish is a harsh word, but it feels selfish a lot of the time. Yeah, Nietzsche would say that empathy and, and sympathy were signs of weakness. Hmm. I believe it's the opposite. Well, I do too. <laughs> I do too. That, um... Yes, uh, we're also seeing that with a uh, Black Lives Matter movement that's happening now. Um, you know, when when it's argued that police lives matter, but that's missing the point of, in my opinion, that's missing the point of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. um, so I see it with that. Uh, yeah, it's it's when I when I read Dad's story and I saw the Superman complex, I was like, wow, that is twenty twenty, mm -hmm. is how it feels. So. Yeah. Yep. It's it's still here. Oh yeah, Certainly. full force. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Hopefully we will uh, grow as a country moving forward and have well, some empathy and sympathy. And <laughs> at least at least put this thing behind us for a while. Yes, for sure. I don't know if it's ever going to completely go away. Right. Sadly. You're yeah. young. You can have more optimism than I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, these guys. We're kind of stupid, Dad. Well, in my opinion, I think I think that's uh, I I think that's a word that certainly sums it up. Which is funny that they had Superman complex because right that right. that broke down pretty fast. Right, <laughs> uh, arrogance and hubris. You know, we're we're too smart for you. No one can ever catch us, and they just made amateur mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we could just. We could just go through them, you know. <laughs> you did. You numbered I them. <laughs> I, I guess the one that that um, probably 
strikes me as as just unbelievable would be and and I'm I'm sorry to have to talk about a 14-year-old boy like this but they they talk about hiding the body and disfiguring the body and then they just they just put it where where it's visible from the road I mean right why not bury him right why not burn him but just to dump the body Anybody could have seen it, and anybody did. They it did. Was a night watchman walking down the road. Oh, there's a foot. Um, yeah, just just so arrogant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they believe that no one can catch us. We're just too smart for it. And obviously, you know, within days, mm-hmm. they were they were in jail. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that is all too common with with murderers. Is everyone thinks they'll be the one to get away with it? When they rarely, well, who knows? I mean, who knows? There are a lot of people who have never been caught, but there are also a lot of people who have gotten caught. Right. There are a lot of cold cases out there, but, yes. but still, um, people get caught. Mm-hmm. And police have a lot of experience. Police and detectives, they know what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. Usually more so than that murderer absolutely. does. So Absolutely. Yes, I uh, lots of poor planning on, on these boys part and I think that they thought I'm invincible I get what I want so why would I get caught sort of that a lot of young people think they're invincible and mm-hmm. I never did I'm scared of everything but <laughs> as you know but I a lot of people you know my age and a little younger think this isn't going to happen to me I'll be fine right but right which I'm guessing is what was going through their heads I think as that well. was I think that was a big piece of it and then this whole this whole Superman complex, you know, mm-hmm. I'm smart. I graduated from college at 17. I've read all these books. Well, book no. smart is not the same as street smart. Right. I know right. that. I'm right. not street smart. Right. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, tell me more about this 12-hour argument. That's insane. 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Well, again, you've you you've got to put yourself back in in the nineteen twenties. Um, today, our attention span is probably ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when when I was practicing law and I would give a final summation to a jury, my goal was to keep it about twelve minutes mm-hmm. because I knew after that I was going to be losing people, no matter how compelling it was. But before television, even before really radio drama, the courtroom was one of the centers of entertainment. Right. And and Darrow wasn't just reciting facts. He was he was brilliant with the words that he used, the turn of phrases. He was an orator par excellence. And uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say he was long winded. I would say he was spellbinding. Uh, he could paint word pictures that would put the jury and the judges uh, in the scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the emotion that he could wring from, from other people with his speeches was, was, just, um, was just amazing. So, you know, he, he kept them there for, well, he kept the judge there for 12 hours. And obviously he was playing to the judge. To the that judge. was his audience. So it wasn't 12 jurors. He knew this judge. He knew the judge's feelings. And he spent 12 hours just hammering home to the judge. Your instincts are right. The death penalty is immoral. 
It's inhumane. It's wrong. Don't buy into this system. Let these let these boys live. And it worked. Mm-hmm. So his strategy was to be more of play to the heart of people, and it was kind of like a play. Did you say that? Yes. Yeah. 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 It was entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was the he was one of the attorneys in the Scopes Monkey trial, mm-hmm. and uh, he was in, in that one. He wasn't using sympathy and and tugging at the heartstrings. It was sarcasm. Uh, William Jennings Bryan was talking about the literal truth of the Bible, and and Darrow just cut him to ribbons by essentially making fun of religion. Hmm. Um, he lost that trial, by the way. A lot of people don't remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, his client was convicted. But in the annals of history, I think we would say Darrow won that trial. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he wasn't defending John Scopes. He was defending evolution. And ultimately, okay. he won. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Leopold was granted parole. He was. Um, mm-hmm. And after hearing your story, at first I was like, What? But then we have to remember, well, there's never an excuse to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. That's one of the hard things. It's like young and young and dumb, mm-hmm. but you took a life. Mm-hmm. So, and while I personally don't agree with the death penalty, I also don't agree with letting just f- making someone feel like I killed someone and so mm-hmm. now I can live free after this many years. Yeah even though I took someone's life. You know, he did He did over 30 years in prison. Yeah. Uh, Leopold did. And he never really repented, as far as we know. I mean, there was never an apology issued. But he tried to improve life in the prison. He had started educational reforms and uh, uh, tried to help patients. So... I think a lot of people felt he earned his mm-hmm. parole. And even today, uh, you know, unless you were sentenced to life in prison with no parole, eventually people, mm-hmm. most people get out. Now, one of the people we'll be talking about in the future, uh, Mr. Manson, mm-hmm. he never <laughs> made it. But um, uh, most people are granted parole at some point mm-hmm. in, in their career. So it's it's not... Uncommon. Right, right. That whole uh, Leopold's journey in prison reminds me of Bernie Teed, mm. one of one of our favorite movies. Um, well, it's based off of a real person, Bernie Teed, uh, and Jack Black portrayed him in the movie Bernie, dark comedy. And Bernie, he became a friend to a bitter old woman in town in Carthage, Texas, correct? Yeah. Uh, And her husband had died. She was just a... Everyone called her mean, and no one liked her, but Bernie loved her and wanted to make her happy. Like, not in a romantic way, but as a friend, and he he loved everyone, and he ended up... She ended up making him so upset, and she was controlling him, and that one day he impulsively just shot her in the back three times. Mm-hmm. And I was very out of character. No one believed he did it ever. Or they knew he did it, but they 
didn't want him to go to prison. Mm-hmm. So they're like, we love Bernie. And in prison, he would, they show him at the, they show the real Bernie at the end of the movie making like pillows and embroidering things and just interacting with the other prisoners. So when you said that, that's what came to mind. Yeah. And, and interestingly, in that movie, the, the district attorney who prosecuted him uh, ended up going to his parole hearing and, and recommending parole for him after mm-hmm. he'd served a number of years. So he tried to make up for what he did. And I and I think that's what happened with Nathan Leopold. He, mm-hmm. he tried to give back to society and he was eventually released and by all accounts led a, led a productive life for the last 13, 14 years of his life in Puerto Rico. Uh, became an x-ray technician, hmm. wrote a book, uh, married, so. Do you think if someone murdered some a 14 year old boy today went to prison and then got paroled do you think they'd be able if you move to puerto rico today after being in prison are you able to live a normal life like leopold did with social media being what it is i doubt it mm-hmm. i think uh i think you would be hounded on social media everywhere you went there would be pictures of you there would be uh, the, did you know this person's in your neighborhood? I, I think it would be a very difficult life today mm-hmm. just because of the prevalence of of social media. Especially with a trial that big. Mm-hmm. I'm sure today it would be international and, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. sad. Um, but then again, think about all the celebrities who have gone to prison and have come out, and now they're probably bigger than ever. I mean, Martha Stewart, <laughs> Martha for Stewart. example. You know, yep. sometimes going to prison is uh, is really pretty good for your brand. Mm-hmm. Guess yes. we'll see what happens with Lori Loughlin. I guess maybe we'll she'll, see. Maybe she'll win an Oscar finally. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. What other big celebrities have gone to prison? I can't. I mean, from the religious world, there's Jim Baker. He went to prison. Now he's out hawking miracle cures for coronavirus <laughs> oh, uh, no. bigger than ever um well now we i wanted to mention some of the uh media that this story has been that that are based on this story uh, as dad said numerous films plays and fiction works um the episode of columbo mm-hmm. do you want to go into more detail about that or well, uh, if you've ever seen Columbo, you know it's not a typical detective show. In a typical detective show, someone gets murdered and the whole show is the detective trying to solve the murder and leading the audience on and planning clues and everybody's trying to guess who did it. In Columbo, you see who did it in the first scene and the rest of the show is Columbo trying to catch the murderer. Um, and in this particular play, it was two very rich young kids uh, politically connected, and one of them was going to get a failing grade for cheating in their college criminology class, so they just decided, we'll commit the perfect murder and kill the professor. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, Columbo was actually a visiting teacher in the class at that episode, and uh, he figured out almost immediately what had happened. It was just, took him an hour to prove how they did it, and just... (laughs) Again, stupid mistakes, uh, and just didn't work. So, but mm-hmm. it was it was loosely based on Leopold and Loeb. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the the whole rich we're kids. Too, we're, yeah. we're rich. We're smart. You can't catch us, Columbo. You're an idiot. Well, not quite. Right, 
And if you didn't catch that, Columbo is the answer to our trivia question That's this correct. week. Yes. yes. Okay. So we will choose a winner very soon on social media. Uh, yeah, I we love Columbo. It's it's a good show. It is. If you've ever seen The Princess Bride, Columbo is the he plays the grandpa. Yes. At the beginning, reading the book. So Peter Falk is yes. the actor. That is Columbo. Great actor. Yes. All right. Well. Some other uh, movies and plays and everything. There was Rope, which was a 1929 play by Patrick Hamilton that was also made into a 1948 Alfred Hitchcock film. Have you seen that? I have not. I've not seen any of these. Oh, okay. But I'd like to. Yeah. Uh, Compulsion, which was a fictionalized version in Meyer Levin's 1956 novel and 1959 film adaptation. Nothing But the Night was a 1957 James Yaffe novel. Little Brother Fate, 1957 Mary Carter Roberts novel. Never the Sinner was a John, was a play by John Logan's... I'm sorry. Never the Sinner was a play by John Logan in 1988. And I did see a lot about this play. This must be a pretty popular play. Uh, it was based on... Contemporary newspaper accounts of the case. It included an explicit portrayal of Leopold and Loeb's sexual relationship, and that was rumored. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that mm -hmm. you knew some, you read some things about this. Right. There's never been any explicit proof that Leopold and Loeb were lovers, and I think we have to be careful taking 1920 mores and customs and transporting them a hundred years in the future. I mean, there were letters that uh, that Nathan wrote to Dickey that seemed to indicate there was a you know a love relationship there, but whether it was platonic or sexual, uh, no one knows. One thing that that is pretty certain is that that Leopold really wanted to please Loeb. That when Loeb would come up with an idea, uh, Nathan would go along with it just because it was his friend's idea. Now, whether or not, you know, there's an underlying sexual relationship, I, I don't think we'll ever know. That's a good point because even when reading books from this time, the verbiage is just different. Like the language was different a sure, hundred sure, years ago, of sure. course. So yeah, we'll I mean, never there, know. Right. I mean, there, were, there was nothing a hundred years ago or 150 years ago for a man to talk about how much he loved another man or a woman to talk about her feelings for another woman didn't necessarily mean it was sexual. It may have been. We just, you know, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Yep. The last uh, piece of media I have on my list is one of my favorite TV shows that I've been telling Dad to watch, mm -hmm. but he has not watched it yet. Uh, it is the, the USA series The Sinner, and mm -hmm. that is a show by Jessica Alba, uh, she stars in season one, and I'm looking up who plays the detective, because he is a famous actor. Um, he is played, so Harry, Detective Harry Ambrose is played by, you'll know who it is, Dad. Detective Harry Ambrose is played by Bill Pullman. Mm. And he is fabulous in it. So he okay. is the constant in all the seasons. He's always the detective, but the story changes, the main people change. Season one was about, I'm not spoiling, this is at the very beginning of the episode, 
It's about Jessica Alba. I'm sorry. I've been saying Jessica Alba. Jessica Beale. Okay. Wrong Jessica. Jessica Beale. Married to Justin Timberlake. She randomly kills a man at the beach. And we take the whole season to find out why. Anyway, season three is supposedly based on Leopold and Loeb. And I don't have cable. And they haven't released this season on Netflix yet. But from the trailer, I'm guessing it's about a man whose friend comes that he hasn't spoken to in a long time shows up and it's like the friend is holding blackmail over him so my guess is they are leopold and Loeb, mm-hmm. and they killed someone and mm-hmm. so looks really interesting so uh, yes I, I will certainly try and watch it assuming i can ever wrest the remote control from your mother <laughs> Good watching luck. her uh What's the show where you We watch married, married at First Sight. Married at First Sight, The Bachelor reruns. 90 Day Fiance. Yeah, if I can ever sneak the remote away from her, I'll be sure and watch uh, It's a good center. one. Okay. Yes, very right. good. Well, this was fun. Yes. Uh, thank you, Dad. You're most welcome. This was welcome. a really good uh, case. Your trivia question for this week, and after this, after Leopold and Loeb, we are not doing giveaways for the trivia question. This is just for fun now. Because I'm going to go broke if I keep buying you all stuff. <laughs> so it's just for fun now. Uh, in what recent movie was the Charles Manson, Sharon Tate murder loosely portrayed? Ooh. Do you, know, you know this one. I we've know. been talking about it. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch the movie, so. Yes, yes, yes. That's for this weekend. Yes, so let us know on social media. And I'm excited to cover Charles Manson next week. Okay. It'll be a good one. The Sounds 60s good. are my favorite fashion decade. All right. Mini skirts. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Polka dot bikinis. Cute stuff. It's going to be great. Okay. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. Join our Facebook group to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive videos and content. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have a merch line. There is a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Kate Mays. Thank you to Alex Joachim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.